You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 47, Where Are All the Geniuses? Isaac Newton's mathematical principles of natural philosophy changed the face of science and revolutionized how we look at the world. He also contributed to many other fields. Nobody doubts his towering genius. He published, for example, Mathematical Principles in 1687. And at that time, the world's population was around 550 million. Today, there are about 7 billion people on Earth. So if Newton was a one in a 550 million kind of person, predictably, we should have about 13 Isaac Newton level geniuses alive right now. But it doesn't really feel like we've got that many geniuses around. So today we're going to ask, where are all the geniuses and who better to ask than Jim? Who better to ask? <laughs> that's very that's very nice. I think you are just as worthy of asking. <laughs> anyway, I feel I totally feel this too. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like there are Newtons around. Um, and I think there are a couple of reasons why people get this impression. But I think most of the reasons aren't very good. But I do agree that there's an impression of that. Yeah, it's hard to think about any major big scientific revolution since, uh, I don't know, the discovery of DNA or even the internet, but I think the internet can't even be attributable to any one individual, I don't think, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. It does seem like we're we're not having to completely rewrite textbooks very often because of the discoveries of one person. But if we're looking at genius as a psychological trait, uh, I think they haven't disappeared. Do you mean that we probably don't have that many Newton le- or we have that many Newton le- level geniuses around? Yeah, I think we have probably yes and probably more. Really? More. Flynn effect. Oh, right, right. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, so okay. So why do why does it feel like there aren't that many geniuses around? Well, first, as you know, not all scientific discoveries are as easy to solve as others. Some are very difficult and others are easier. That's true. And low-hanging fruit gets picked first, as we know. Right. Right. Most of the scientific low-hanging fruit has already been picked in just about every field. But Newton, he invented calculus, which we, you know, we use it in many ways. Yes. And he benefited from the fact that nobody had ever invented it before. Actually, Leibniz discovered it around the same time. Let's not forget Leibniz. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. There's, there's sometimes convergent discovery and uh, simultaneous discovery. It's a funny story. A researcher named Mary Ty rediscovered calculus and published it in 1994, and her paper got cited 75 times. She was uh, applying it to the study of diabetes. She actually called it Ty's model. Oh, my goodness. Didn't the reviewers recognize it? <laughs> no, no. Anyway, so but what's hmm. the lesson we draw from this? Hmm. One might say that, well, maybe that coming up with calculus wasn't so hard to begin with. That might diminish Newton a bit. Or we might say that as a modern scientist, with all her knowledge of mathematics and everything else, she had an advantage. Discoveries don't always happen in a vacuum. Right. Anyway, so low-hanging fruit. There's a great book by Samuel Arbusman called The Half-Life of Facts that shows how discoveries are getting harder and harder to make. If you plot discoveries, you find in many areas exponential decay in discoveries. So can you explain that a bit more? So let's take uh, the discovery of asteroids as an example. As you might imagine, we've already discovered the biggest asteroids. And as technology got better and people tried harder and more people were working at it, we discovered more asteroids, but they got smaller and smaller and smaller. And you can plot that. They get smaller at about 2.5% every year. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are still more out there, right? 
Yes. We'll always be discovering new asteroids because they, they can be very, very small. But you can see how hard it would be to make a name for yourself <laughs> as mm -hmm. a discoverer of new asteroids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the big ones are already found. And it turns out that no field has been completely exhausted of discoveries, except for maybe the discovery of major human organs. Um, but another example is the invention of drugs. It's getting more and more expensive to discover new drugs. That's scary given we're getting new diseases, right? Yeah, it is. And because the discovery has to be paid for by somebody. So to keep creating new drug treatments, we need more and more money and more and more scientists every year to work on the problem. Now, that seems weird to me because it seems like scientific progress appears to be moving faster than ever. Yeah, it is. But that's mostly because we're generating so many more scientists. Think about this. 80% of the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. Isn't that interesting? That can't be true. <laughs> no, it's true. Not, not only is it true, it's been true for the last 300 years. Every year for the last 300 years, 80% of the scientists who've ever lived were alive. Whoa. So they're just, they're, they're, we're just growing the number of scientists greatly. And we're throwing more minds at all the problems that have yet to be solved, right? Yeah. And as such, we've got a deluge of papers being published, thousands of papers a day that nobody can possibly keep up with. Yeah, I, my goodness, even in my field, I find it impossible to read even the most barest minimum of the most important things. It's, it's overwhelming how much is actually published and out there. Yeah, and I think all, this, all scientists are in the same position. And this is a big problem. Um, so there's one estimate that shows that scientists cite... Uh, fewer than 25% of the relevant previous studies. So 75% of relevant previous studies are being ignored. And this percentage gets smaller the more papers there are. Hmm. So making contributions often means standing on the shoulders of the findings of the past, but increasingly it's difficult to know what's been done because you can't read everything. Um, and I've heard some psychologists say that they're seeing people do, they're basically repeating the same experiments that were run in the 60s. And the modern researchers just didn't ever hear about them. They don't know about them. And they just, they're just needlessly replicating work. Are they doing it just with more sophisticated techniques? Not even. I mean, they might be. But, but I mean, experimental psychology, you know, it's sometimes it's a memory test or, you know, you don't need right. uh, sophisticated anything. You might have better stats. But, hmm. um, yeah, they're just like replicating the experiment. And one thing I've also noted and uh, that's a trend is Scientific papers tend to have increasingly more lists of authors, more than there ever used to be. You know, you don't really see single author publications anymore. It, it also reminds me of music. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, it seems like every song is an artist that features some other artist or some group of artists. Like, can we do anything anymore on our own? Like, what what is what's what is this? You know, I, and I'm all for collaboration. But have you noticed this as well? Yeah, and and just on the music the music point, um, I read a book. Uh, called the hit machine or something like that. I mean, even like pop songs that, you know, when you see they're featuring some other artist, it's usually, you know, like a rapper or something like that. But there's often like six people behind the creating the, the writing and the generation mm. of that song. Yeah. You know, people make songs, they get shopped around to different artists. So it's very collaborative. Hmm. Um, but, you know, you and I aren't musicians. We're scientists. So we're talking mostly about scientific genius, not uh, musical, you know, genius. Beastie Boys. So this gets to another reason why we don't seem to see so many geniuses around. Nowadays, lone geniuses seem rarer because the major discoveries are now made by teams of people. Uh, and people have studied this. So studies show that the, what are called the home run papers, those that get over a thousand citations, they are six times as likely to come from teams of scientists than individuals. 
So can we say that more scientific advances are being made by teams than individuals? Yes, we can. So, so if you look at particle physics as a very clear example, not only have the cheap, easy experiments all been done, but now we need to build gigantic super colliders costing billions of dollars to run the experiments. There's a 2015 paper uh, published with more than 5,000 authors. You're joking. <laughs> no. Oh. 5,000 authors. Like, I bet that even just the citation alone would have taken pages and pages of text, right? Thank goodness we're like not... 24 pages. Oh, my gosh. Thank goodness we're not printing things out anymore. And I heard that the 3,432nd author really felt he should have been 3,431st. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> he totally got shafted there. I totally agree with him. Oh, my God. So... Yeah, that paper, they were trying to get a better measure of the size of the Higgs boson. Okay, so this is like 5,000 people trying to get a a slightly better measurement of a subatomic particle size. I bet you there are some Carlton people in there. That would be cool. Don't we do all that work? Well, it'd be be embarrassing if there weren't. If there's 5,000, I mean, 5,000 authors, Carlton, come on, throw a grad student in there. (laughs) I'm going to go look that up. (laughs) There's also a genomics paper with over 1,000 authors, so it's not just... uh, it's not just physics. So, you know, the number of authors are increasing. You can't find a thousand author paper from 100 years ago. Yeah, no, that's that's no unheard of. I've seen um, big epidemiological papers with lots of authors mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. like when they're doing like global uh, epidemiological studies. And, and, you know, they've got multiple authors from multiple countries. Anyway, even if any one of those papers were to find something really important, I guess that's part of the crux of the issue is that. How do you isolate genius from that mass of 1,000, 5,000 authors, 10 authors, right? They're all collectively contributing to that piece of science or work. So is that part of the issue there? Am I getting at it? Yeah, I think so. I I think that we're just reluctant to call a group of people working on something a genius. Like genius, Mm. we've got this heroic aesthetic and we think that individuals, we like to think anyway, that the the movers Mm. and shakers of the world are these you know, individuals who think outside the box or whatever. And when we look at history, we, you know, we, we, we talk about history in terms of the influence of individuals. We sometimes mm-hmm. neglect the often intense collaboration that went on, and we only focus on the, you know, the genius of interest. And just, uh, just reflecting on this, I would say most of my research, if not all, is collaborative in nature. Yeah, me too. You know, you know, this differs a bit with field. I think the, the humanities are still mainly single authored. I know that's true. But for me, you know, for me too, and scientists in general, it's it's um, at least a grad student and a supervisor. And anyway, the collaboration thing is really important, you know, especially when one person can't possibly know everything about a field because of the paper deluge. Now, tech, technology advances the fastest in the largest land masses. So this is interesting. So if collaboration is important, hmm. this predicts that, you know, if there are a lot of people, there are going to be more discoveries. And that's what that's true. So the largest land masses support the largest populations. And if you're trying to predict scientific growth of knowledge, the population is the best predictor of, of how much scientific growth is happening. So population density. So people in big cities are more likely to be innovative or are you going to see it? That's absolutely. Outcomes? Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. So so the, the proximity is also there's another paper that shows that if you um, if you're more than like, I don't know, it's some small you got to be in the same building. If you're more than like 30 seconds away from their desk, they might as well be in another city. But as a, as a city grows in population, there's a more efficient use of infrastructure and there's higher productivity increase in forms of cultural expression. So if you look at per capita increases in patents and the number of educational and research institutions, 
uh, it grows with a power law. So there's like, like a full 15% greater than would be expected by linear growth if like being in a city. Uh, it just sort of amplifies the innovation. I wonder if another thing that might be going on is modern innovations might be just simply harder to understand. Like mm. Stephen ha Hawking, for example, revolutionized our understanding of black holes, but most people don't really understand or know how, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was kind of true of Einstein, too. But, you know, Stephen Hawking is a good example because he's he's one of the few people that we would say are sort of contemporary. I mean, he, he's passed away now, but... Yeah, I would say he's he's a contemporary genius, for yeah, sure. Yeah, he would be described as a contemporary genius um, more than many. But, you know, his findings, he's not really known for any one particular slam-bang discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and most people wouldn't understand what he says. So, you know, but that makes sense, too. Theories that are easier to think of and easier to understand, they're also a form of low-hanging fruit, right? So uh, one of my favorite geniuses is John von Neumann, but his stuff is, it can be very hard to relate to. But even he was a contemporary of Einstein. Right. <laughs> yeah, they both worked on the atomic bomb together, and they were friends. That's fair enough. And that's another, that's another thing. Sometimes the genius is figured out much, much later. Like, we don't, they're not recognized as geniuses in their time. Right. So the geniuses of today, today might not even be discovered yet, right? Yeah. Right. It could be me. It could be, yes. It could be you. Right. It could be. If you're listening to this in the year 2550. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're, and you're researching yeah, a high school unlikely. paper on the Hel the Hellman's effect. Uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think this is, you know, um, yeah, geniuses sometimes get discovered later. I think this is less likely to happen in science for, I'm not sure why. Mm. But certainly in the arts, we have incredibly famous, influential people who are much more famous now than they were when they were alive. Artworks and sometimes, you know, artists and their whole uh, oeuvre get discovered later on, and uh, like in the case of Van Gogh. You know, he died very poor, and only later was his genius recognized. And another factor that we should mention is that women who are at the genius level uh, are less likely to be recognized as such than men who have the same level of ability or accomplishments. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm aware of this work. If we have equal numbers of, quote unquote, brilliant men and women, some of those women might not even be labeled as such. And they've done studies where using like the implicit association test where you're kind of asked to, you see things flashing on a screen and you have to press a key to indicate whether you agree with the term brilliant and, and a female face, for example. And the theory is the faster your reaction time, the more likely you are. That means that you're, um, you already have this implicit association of, say, women in brilliance or men in brilliance. And in these tests, they've shown that the reaction times for associating female faces and the word brilliance are slower than that for, for males. So pretty, pretty damning. Yeah, and they've 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 also done studies of like changing names on resume. I know that that um, that mm -hmm. test the um, IIT what is it called the uh, IAT IAT that's been yeah. I know it's I, I haven't looked into it too much. I think it's been criticized uh, yeah. for for that for that particular application. But they I know that, then they also do studies of like uh, they switch the names on resumes and ask people to rate yeah. them, and the women uh, get get rated lower. So anyway, so there that's happening for sure, and and you know. And if you look into the past, certainly the sexist cultures played a role in the gender ratios of people who are historically labeled as geniuses, there's no doubt. Yeah, and, and then we can extend that to other 
underrepresented groups, marginalized folks, BIPOC, et cetera. Yeah. So speaking of history, uh, let's get back to what you suggested earlier, that there might actually be more geniuses per capita than in the past. And can you maybe explain a little bit more? Why, why do you say that? Right. Yes. This is because of something called the Flynn effect. And that is basically that worldwide people are getting smarter every year. Now, this might come as a shock to people who think that everyone's getting stupider, but, you know, I think people forget how dumb people were in the past. But anyway, the average human IQ is 100, if we're looking at IQ scores, but it's only staying constant at 100 over time because we have to make the tests harder every year. So basically, we make the test so that the average is 100, and the tests keep getting harder every year. So somebody with a 100 IQ today is actually smarter than somebody with a 100 IQ uh, if they were measured in the past. Mm, I've heard of that. Uh, I remember teaching it in psychology. But how fast is this actually happening? Well, we can measure that. It's about three IQ points per decade. Whoa. And that's a lot. So, you know, if we think of like IQ, for those of you not familiar with IQ, like 100 is average. 140 is considered like genius level. Okay, so three points is a lot, right? It's about a fifth of a standard deviation. Um, You know, and so if you like take a test today and get 100 on it. If you took a test from 10 years ago, you'd get three points higher. <laughs> wow. So my kids are obviously going to be smarter than me, is what you're saying, and so on and so forth. Yep. So according to this measurement tool... Six points higher, exact- probably. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No doubt. Uh, why is this happening? That is not totally known. So IQ tests are supposed to measure innate intelligence, independent of what you've learned, But unfortunately, the truth is that as you learn things, you get educated, uh, you do get smarter. So your IQ does go Mm -hmm. up with education. So more education might be a part of it. Uh, Also, the intelligence that you have the potential to achieve is better realized when there are other good things going on in your life, like having proper nutrition, uh, good parents, a less stressful lifestyle. So as these Mm. things have become more common in the world, people are better able to realize the high intelligence that their, you know, their genes make them capable of having. I wonder if the price they pay for that is increasing issues with mental health. Boom. Anyway, it suggests <laughs> the, the Flynn effect may not last forever, right? Like, there's got to be some end point to this. Right. So growth will always run out of resources. So to the extent that IQ is increasing because of increased nutrition and, uh, you know, other lifestyle effects, you know, once people get enough nutrition, they're not going to grow to be eight feet tall eventually, right? Like <laughs> they just yeah, grow yeah, to yeah, whatever yeah. whatever their genes will allow them to do. And they're probably the same thing is happening with IQ. And we're starting to see that in some countries, the Flynn effect, where it's been going on the longest, it is now kind of petering out and is not going at the same rate. But there's no doubt the Flynn effect has happened in the past and is continuing to happen, particularly in uh, poorer countries. And this has recently been confirmed with a meta-analysis of 271 samples from 31 different countries and 4 million people. So it's very, very a uh, lot of evidence that the Flynn effect is happening. Uh, how many authors was, were on that paper? <laughs> <laughs> At least one per sample, right? <laughs> so is this referring to all kinds of intelligence? Uh, not really. So IQ is supposed to measure general intelligence. And some people argue that there are sub kinds of intelligence that it's better to measure. Um, but they do tend to correlate. But the, the Flynn effect does seem to have the biggest effect on the kind of intelligence that we might associate with kind of an analytic mindset, reasoning, thinking about abstractions, you know, uh, kind of like, um, 
that, that, that stuff like that, right? That kind of thinking is really important for technological and scientific innovation. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's why I think there are probably a ton of Newton-level geniuses out there. And there's just less for them to discover. And they have to do it in a group. And nobody can understand what you'll discover. <laughs> and they won't realize it for 20 years. <laughs> and basically all bad news for being remembered as a genius. Oh, so all you Newtons out there, respect. We see you. <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Thank you.